This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Coming to you live again from Orlando. We're still at HITS 2022 in Orlando. And I've brought one of my instructors over here to talk to a little bit. It's a new instructor that we have that came to us from, I'm going to find out if you're still in the UK, but we'll get to that. But I have Daryl Pleasance here, and he came to us uh, this year to help us out and do a tracking class. So with that, Daryl, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, you enjoying your time here at HITS? Yeah, it's it's amazing to have 1,200 dog teams all here in the same place, all wanting to learn. It's, it's, it's a fantastic. It's a, it's a fun environment. we got a lot of people here who are, you know, it runs the gamut from brand new handlers or maybe not even a handler yet to super experienced handlers and everybody's here networking and having a good time and, and trading a lot of the great ideas. And I appreciate you coming a long ways to, to share some of your experiences. So um, can you tell me a little bit about your background first? We'll start there. Yeah, so I started off in the Royal Army Veterinary Corps in the British Army. I was a class one instructor and I served for eight years in various roles. I then went on to the prison service and I worked with dogs in the prison service. Um, and about 14, ye- 14 years ago, I was then asked to go out to Africa and put a dog section together, a tracking dog section. And because I had previous tracking experience in the military, I was asked to go out and actually put the section together. It was very successful. Um, we realized very quickly um, that the dog sections in regards to anti-poaching dog units and tracker dog units were being massively underutilized. And they weren't being used correctly. So we then made the changes necessary, and it basically went from there, country to country. Okay, so you went pretty fast, so I'm going to pick your brain a little bit. So okay. uh, the military, did you, you work the dog there, I take it? And, and So I was a, a class one. In, um, I was First of all, I was a trainer. Yep. So we all start off as trainers in the Royal Army Veterinary Corps. Um, and from there, you work through the categories, class three, class yeah. two to class one. And then you become an instructor. My last um, instructional role was actually tracking, and it was on the arms explosive search okay. team as an instructor. And you worked several different dogs when you were in the military. Um, y- um, no, not so much because we were um, as a trainers. We were we were we were actually instructing um, oh, okay. other soldiers, or we were training dogs up to um, seven protection dogs at a time, or three okay. search dogs. So you you kind of pre-train them and then get them ready, and then yeah. you bring the and soldiers in, and, and then we train the handlers. So in that time, you got your hands on a lot of dogs and a lot of uh, handlers. So you saw a lot of different teams, and yeah, I had to work on so. it. it. I'm sure that was a great learning experience. And then when you said you you went to Africa. Was that like a UK connection to a country in Africa? Was there, were you still, or did you go do that as a? Yes, it was actually a colleague of mine who was ex-special operations. Um, He uh, was training a unit out there, a dog unit, uh, sorry, a a group of rangers out there. And Uh they had a dog unit and the dog unit wasn't being correctly. And obviously having a contact with him, they asked me me to go out and to turn the dog section around and actually use it properly. Oh, okay. And then how many uh, teams did you start out with there? So we, start there we started off with 11 dogs in Kenya and 11 handlers. Um, from there, we went to Tanzania, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Botswana, South Africa. And uh, from there, we went to India. 
we then worked with various op- um, operational units in Europe, and we've just recently gone over to South America, where we're working in Belize, Guatemala, and Costa Rica. Oh, wow. Now, is that through the British government, or is that a private company that you're doing it with? No, they're various, um, I, w- I wouldn't say contracts, but they're, very, uh, they're various um, deployments with um, all s- uh, around conservancies and national parks that have either a problem with organized crime yeah. or with um, poaching. Okay. And are you living in these countries for long periods at a time while you're doing this? Um, generally, the deployments are about two weeks at a time. Oh, okay. So you're based out of the UK. Okay, so you're not moving to Africa or anything like that. No, not so in the immediate future. <laughs> and uh, I guess the, what was like your what's your your some of your first experience just in in Africa, just being there? Because I've talked to a few trainers who go over there, and it's uh, I think maybe I think there's more of a UK connection to Africa than there is here. So. I think there's probably, is there some countries there that are still at least sister countries of the UK or however you would say that where you have some connection to it? It was, it was in the, there's been a massive change in the last sort of 14 years since I've been going over there and working. Um, When my first went over there, um, I was primarily around the uh, anti-poaching units and traffic dog units rather than organized crime units. And it was, we were losing 100 elephant a day across across Africa, you know. Yeah, I know a day across, which was massive amounts of oh money yeah. when you look at the value, and we've slowly progressed past that with the national parks now, and we are na- we are, I wouldn't say on top of the poaching um, problem, but we're certainly managing it, and we've got a successful reproduction rate now within the species. But what we found is, as we've moved away from poaching, because we've managed to get on top of it, we're now finding that there's other the national parks are being used for other um, criminal activities. Like what are th- what are they used for now? So um, there's massive problems with money laundering through cattle. So oh, it's, okay. it's a very easy way to launder. And of course, those ca- those huge herds of cattle come onto the reserves. You've got the illegal logging, okay. um, illegal gold mining, especially in South America, which is millions a year. Um, you've got the illegal capture of uh, wild birds like the macaws or high oh, value, okay. value birds. Illegal floristry, even. Believe wow. it or not, they'll take certain flowers and certain leaves out of yeah. the rainforest for the floristry industry. You've got the illegal um, drug cultivation. You wow. know, you've got encroachment. There's there's just so many problems on these reserves. And, of course, we're going to get to the dog training in a minute, but I think this is good background for, for the environment you're working in. That's why I'm asking the questions. So in these environments, um, is there good support when you're there and you start trying to train these these handlers? Is there good support from whether it's military or police just for the protection or is it is it the wild, wild west there? Or what kind of environment are you working in when you're, you're trying to set these teams up? The environments um, vary greatly. Um, in with some of the reserves and national parks that we work on, we have um, both military and police support. Other reserves we work on, we purely have the rangers. Oh, okay. Reserves and we're training the rangers and they are the front line of conservation, so to speak. Yeah. And there's in on all these parks. It sounds like there's quite a bit of activity that you need to have your head on a swivel for. Obviously, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. It, it, it's very much an unrecognized crime. Okay. But if you look at animal trafficking, um, it's it's the third biggest. Wow. Money maker. Yeah, and like you say, I think a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to it. But I think, um, obviously, you know, there, when there's high value and high money and everything, I think then there you're going to have a lot of violence associated with it and a lot of danger. So I'm sure that you're seeing, you know, is there a lot of homicide that goes along with this or uh, what is their, their violence? Yeah, very much so. If, if we, um, certainly with the rhino poaching, um, they're organized yeah. crime units. It's not as people would believe, you know, local yeah. locals with, you know, it's actually organized crime. So you'll have two 
two armed gunmen with AK-47s. They'll generally be ex-Somalian soldiers. They'll have a ranger and a tracker. And if you're looking at the value of rhino horn, anything between 60,000 and 200,000 a kilo, depending on where they're selling. Oh, wow. Which is for if you've got a horn that's four or five kilos, that's quite a large amount of yeah. money that's yeah. going into the... Um, into the into the crime world and it's the same with with ivory they will get paid literally uh, you know a thousand a thousand dollars for a 15 kilo set of tusks if they manage to get them away by the time that's gone to the, the country of destination yeah. and it's been carved you could be talking two hundred thousand. yeah so so there's the motivation is there when, yes, you're, certainly. when you're doing that so so now um you you leave the prison service and now you end up in in africa you're going to go do this this uh did you have did you have like a kind of a I don't know, a welcome to the country where they kind of showed you what was going on or did you just end up in a national park with a team of handlers and dogs and, and you started just showing them how to track or did you kind of were you able to get a lay of the land and settle in to see what you were up against? Um, there's always a settlement period when you're going out to these national parks or conservancies and because with, with the greater res greatest respect to, to the to military personnel, they come out to the reserves regularly to train both American yeah. and UK forces do and that training is necessary because it's very different to sure. most environments, certainly with the wild animals. Yeah. And there's certainly more danger within those animals than there is oh yeah. with the poaching incidents themselves. So there's always a period of transition where you, you're learning. Yeah. Um, my first detachment was at Kenya um, and Tanzania. My first deployments were, were, were very um, learn as you go, so to speak. Yeah. But I was very lucky then to get a deployment into Zimbabwe. And I, I learned a lot of skills from uh, a member of the old Selu Scouts, oh, okay. the Selu Scouts, and his, and his son, which taught me a whole new load, a whole new method of training. Oh, okay. Which I've now actually implemented into my training. Okay, and so they were they were training tracking, and you were able to pick up some of the stuff. Yeah, very much so. The the, the old Selu Scouts were regarded as the world's greatest trackers. And was that um, like? The training was uh, some of it based on just dog behavior, or was it a lot based on the environment you were working in? I think that's what makes a good combat tracker team. In all fairness, regards to a tactical tracking team, a tactical tracker team is very much in a very much an urban environment, and it's about understanding the criminal element. Sure. Whereas a combat tracker is understanding the environment that he's working within and the climatic conditions which affect the change yeah. of the track itself, and yeah. also where the spore, where the ground center is laying. Yeah. And the environmental conditions which allow you to read the, the signals that somebody's been through that environment. And also, as well as with, with, with the combat tracking, it's, it's as, as much about finding the lost person as it is about finding yeah, the enemy. The, okay. Because, again, you have the, the, the problems where, on average, if you ask most military dog handlers or you ask most um, police personnel if they were to say to their, their, their general purpose dog, okay, we're going to complete a track, um, but it's a lost person or it's a lost child. Yeah. Would your dog bite at the end? And most are going to say yes. yes. So, so yes, they would add yeah. instinct. Yeah. Whereas so with the combat tracking, we don't have that. So it's it's about it's about finding whatever you're searching for or, or tracking, and then yes, more so. It's more so about finding the person you're looking for rather than the attack at the end. Although our dogs will bite at the end of it if they need to, they need to an apprehension. That's not their primary role. And. I assume, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that's going to change the motivation of the dog to track, right? I mean, if he's not, if he's not, if he's tracking for another reason, or if he's tracking to to bite somebody at the end, do you get a more calm dog when he's not just trying to nuke the first person he finds at the end of the leash? I think um, the bite work is almost a, v a very quick fix, and, and we it's very easy to fall into a bad habit of the 
the bite work the bite work is what motivates the dog sure when you're looking at tracking dogs if you train them correctly it's actually about the prey drive and it's about building prey drive while you're actually teaching them to track so they enjoy the track and we have numerous tracker dogs that will literally stop as soon as they see the person in front of them because they enjoy the track the apprehension right. is almost secondary so they're satiating their drives just by tracking so yes, so when you have that then i imagine long tracks just get better and better because now the dog is working harder because he's enjoying what he's doing and that's that's exactly what we find that if you if you build the the, tr the, the, the enjoyment for the track itself and you do the correct variations between environments and short tracks and long tracks and you keep building that prey drive the dog is motivated by the track not the end result okay so if i if you and i were having a beer tonight and i told you that i was working a, a patrol dog which I'm, I'm not right now but if i if i said i was and and I eat tracked a little bit, and I can pass, you know, the the basic hundred yard one right turn certification track. But I told you I'm not really having much success doing much tracking, you know, in the in the city or something like that. I'm not finding a lot of people truly on a track. What kind of advice, you know, based on that experience, you know, without even being to see my dog, what what where would you start pointing somebody there with your experience? I think what we have to do is we have to take it right the way back to. Um, to lesson one, stage one. And the first question I would probably ask is, uh, have you been taught on a food trail reward system? So there's a common misconception and, and it's been taught for a long, long time across the world, which is the way to teach a tracker dog is to place food in a trail and the dog effectively hoovers up that food yep. as it's going along. Um, and then he starts to track. Now, you're, you're teaching the discipline tracking but you're not it's almost a sport as such which is the old schutzer method whereas what you should be teaching is operational tracking now as oper operational tracker we teach the dog to keep his head up we don't teach the food reward system okay so that's how we build hunt drive because if you're teaching a, and there's no if you look at a, a gray wolf if you look at the african wild dog any hunting animal there is no dog that hunts with their nose on the ground they hunt with their heads at eight sure. to 15 inches above the ground at the four o'clock position yeah, we've, through the four food reward system, forced a dog to put his head onto the ground um, to food reward, which is trying, it's almost like trying to teach a left-handed person to write with the right hand. Sure. It goes against the dog's natural yeah. instincts. And then when you take into to account two other points, well, one of which being that your, your thought to reaction process is 0.25, and the dog's reaction process is 0.06, five times quicker. He reacts five times quicker than you than do. I can with his eyesight, so why would you put his yeah, eyes yeah. looking at the ground rather than his head up, which is how a dog hunts? And the second thing being, if we're looking in at night or low-level condition, a low-level light conditions, a dog can see in light that is five times dimmer than you. So you may not see the felon, the felon may not see you, but the dog can. But yet again, we're training to put yeah. the nose head on the ground. So we teach a, diff a different method, which is the runaway method, um, based on the fact that the dog can see the person running away. So what we do is we have a, a basic 50-meter straight line track. Um, the, the track layers will effectively tease the dog with a tug toy, which is a toy. The, they didn't see the um, track layer. The dog sees the track layer running off in a straight line in front of him. Before the track layer goes to ground or takes the turn, we take the dog away from the process, put him behind a tree so he can't see or a, a vehicle sure, or something sure. to hide him. The track layers will uh, go approximately 50 meters uh, uh, to a distance and location that the, the um, handler knows. They'll lay a native marker at the turn point, and then they'll do a 90 degree left or right 
using wind direction and they'll then go into hiding. We then take the dog back to the start point, encourage the dog to track. The dog initially, um, what we would call, is almost mountain climbing. They claw because they, sure. they, they yeah. claw to get ahead because they can. They know yeah. the track layer's gone, uh, gone off in a direction. But what they don't do is they don't put their nose down. What happens after they've gone past the turn point or the marker point, which they always do, they always overshoot on the first sure. time, they'll generally stop, realize that they, don't, they can't see the person. Yeah. They've got to employ a new method. And that's when you see the dog actually working the problem and you can see the gray matter working. Sure. What we do then is we do very light circular um, open cast back to the turn point and the dog will keep turning, keep turning, keep turning until we take him almost over the turn point. We don't indicate that's the turn point to the dog. We let sure. the dog work it out. And what will happen is the dog will recognize scent going off to the left or to the right. He'll stop work out what's going on, we'll then give him the or her the encouragement and the dog will then move forward in that direction. So you're going to let the dog basically self-learn at this point. We that's do, and that's the difference between the food <coughs> reward system and the runaway method because the runaway method, the dog keeps his in the head up and he's actually hunting. And that's why we have such success with, with the tracker dogs that we have because we're actively encouraging hunt driver and the dog to hunt rather than a discipline which actually goes against the dog's natural instincts and nature. You know, and it's funny because I, I haven't seen your class and I don't think you saw the class I did this morning, but I do a marker training class. And you and I have never talked before until we sat down today. But in my marker training class, everybody that was in there this morning heard me explain over and over that I do not just walk a dog up to a box that has odor in it, tell him to sniff it, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, smack his ass, tell him to sit, and think that the dog's learning to hunt. So now I completely let the dog hunt a very small room with few options make the dog hunt use his natural ability i stay out of his way let him self-learn self you know find the the odor and then we kind of work from there so i think the process is is almost the same where we're kind of getting rid of maybe some older training that maybe was ignoring the actual genetics of the dog and 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 looking at the true i think you know in the, in the nearly 30 years i've done this i think sometimes we have paid lip service to science without really paying attention to science and the more people i talk to now at, you know like at our event it seems like you know you're actually thinking scientifically this is how a dog works in the wild so let's just go with that as opposed to trying to teach a dog to go footprint to footprint to footprint which is not a you're saying is not a natural way for the dog to track no there's nothing instinctual about nose down tracking is simply because we forgot the old methods. I was, as I said, I was really lucky enough to speak to some of the old scout dog handlers after Vietnam and the Rhodesian guy and the Zimbabwe were old Rhodesian guys and they were just a wealth of information and I spoke to them because we were actually losing tracker teams at one point. We lost a couple of tracker teams because over in Africa because we ignored key, key signals. Well, we didn't ignore them. We didn't understand them. Sure. We didn't know. Yeah. We didn't have the knowledge. And the crazy thing was that I spoke to one of the guys out there and I said, you know, what am I doing wrong? And his answer was, what are you doing right? Oh, well, so, that, yeah. so we literally changed change all what our we're operating methods. Yeah. We then go on to, um, from the basic track, we only literally use grass for a couple of weeks, no more than that. And then we immediately go on to hard surface because we want that discrimination of air rafts. We don't want a vegetative, uh, what we call yeah. a vegetative detection dog. Sure. So a dog, because vegetative scent is stronger than air rafts. Yeah, yeah. So the last thing we want is a dog that's orientated towards vegetative. Yeah. And by yeah. putting him onto hard surface, we, we eliminate um, vegetative tracking. And then what we do is we then go on to water tracking, which eliminates contact disturbance, uh -huh. which then only leaves air rafts. And the good thing about 
it's that old adage of you know uh, train hard fight easy okay. that when we <laughs> actually put a dog onto an operational track that is vegetative they're, they're, they're like, it's easy yeah they're like freight trains because yeah. we've trained them harder in other environments sure that makes sense um, a lot of people, you know, interchange the terms tracking, trailing. I think a lot of people have different definitions of that. What would you call this? And does it? I mean, does it really matter? I mean, whether you're tracking or trailing here, what would you say? Okay, this is a, an opinion rather than, sure, than science because there isn't a huge amount of yeah. science between tracking and trailing. The difference is that some dogs will naturally hold their head up. Some dogs will naturally want to put their head lower towards the ground. So you tend to find that the German shepherds will generally want to footstep track. Yeah. Malinois are generally combination dogs. They will track and trail. And the Dutch Shepherds are generally trailers. Just in their characteristics, you're always going to get different dogs. Sure. But they all have a role. And the important thing is, I've seen so many people fail trailing dogs because they haven't put their nose on the ground. The the dog is still effectively tracking, trailing, whatever you want to call it. He's just running, he's just using ground scent until he can orientate towards his preference, which yeah. is air scent, and then he just goes across country. And they have different roles, because if you're know if you doing trying to do a, me- a methodical track, say for a lost child or a person, you want the methodical ground tracker, sure. which is the German Shepherd. Sure. Whereas if you want a dog that's, if you're in a pursuit after a felon, then every time you want the, the Dutch Shepherd, because yeah. that dog is going to cut corners, and cut time out, and get you get to get to the end, get you to the target as quickly as possible. But there is no difference. It's just about preference. Dogs will sure. do all. Dogs will do both. Absolutely, it's just their preference. Yeah. As I said, whether you're a left or you're a right-handed person. So with these dogs, they they would track and they would bite if needed at the end of the track. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about your. How did you source the dogs? You know, not, not particular vendor, but did you use vendors in the UK or or Europe? I should say and. Or do they have do they have any source for dogs there? And then what type of selection test do you personally like to find a dog that will track in the environments in the way that, in the manner that you like to do? Initially, we source we, we would go to the litters and we would source perhaps one puppy from a litter that we thought showed the correct characteristics that we had, and we were initially sourcing from the UK, but we had we had problems with that because. Generally, a lot of the UK and US vendors, they don't have operational experience themselves. So although they're teaching or they're, they're looking for key characteristics in the dog, they don't have the orientation towards the training methods that we had. And obviously, that after COVID, we found that transportation costs yeah, just went through exactly, the roof yeah. and we couldn't afford to ship from the UK or the US to these countries. So what we've done is we've now moved to a vendor in South Africa and he's actually an ex-tracker himself. But more importantly, he shares the same ethos in training that we do. Yeah. Which means he naturally, his eye naturally orientates yeah, towards... Yeah, he knows what you're looking for. Yeah, and the correct dogs out of the litters. Now he's um, breeding Dutch Shepherds and we haven't had uh, a failure since we've started working through these kind of vendors. Okay. It's, it's not so much... We d- we found that we didn't want a vendor that there was a master of all trades. Yep, exactly. We wanted you a vendor specific that yeah, exactly need. specific yeah. needs and knew our experience and what he had, and all, more importantly, he had experience in the field himself. Interesting. I think just my curiosity on all these things. Uh, what what's the cost of a, a dog on that side of the world? Um, in <coughs> South Africa, you would be talking fifteen hundred for a sort of sixteen week sort of up to six month puppy uh, euros or that would be um u.s dollars fifteen hundred dollars yeah and then you'd be talking about three thousand 
um, US dollars for a dog that was a year old. Okay. Yeah, I was just kind of curious how, if they were in strong demand and the prices were crazy. I think or dogs are uh, now in demand worldwide. Yeah, they are. We and we were very lucky with the with with the reputation that we've earned. That we if we approach a vendor, we do tend to get nice dogs. Nice dogs. Yeah. Because yeah. there's also they know that there's going to be a degree of it, it's conservation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they're it's a, a nice a civic pride kind yeah. of a deal. Yes. Yeah. Service service to the community, so to speak. Um, but we have found that the dogs have that have come out of Africa that we've that we've chosen have been extremely high quality. Nice. That's. I mean, I, I've ta- I've talked to people and I know about dogs from all over the world, but honestly, I never really thought about Africa as being a place for for them. Obviously, it probably wouldn't work very well for the U.S. It's so far, but it's just interesting to see where they come from. And going back to the selection test, you know, you, when you're at the vendor and you you pull a dog out, what type of selection test do you do to get to get the dog you want? <laughs> He'll have an idea already because obviously he's working with these puppies yeah. on a daily basis yeah. and he'll do um he'll start imprinting literally from the word go he'll start imprinting um basic um tracking um tests but what we're looking for when when we go and join him and he'll he'll come out with three or four dogs out of the litter that he believes are have show the right instincts and the right characteristics and what we're looking for is just a a general motivation a general keenness towards tracking because he only imprints tracking he doesn't do anything else okay bite work because i believe and that's what i loved about him there's a, a massive problem with tracker dogs where dogs are vendors are putting dogs into bite work from very very young age we're finding it even in the uk at you know 12 16 weeks they're, they're trying to put dogs onto sleeves and sure which teaching a malinois or a dutch shepherd to buy it's like teaching a toddler yeah, to they're toddler gonna to do that most they, most of them are yeah, gonna literally 95 percent. so there's no need to it but because of the the demand for the general purpose police dogs sure. and service dogs that's what um the purchasing the yeah. purchaser wants to see we don't want to see by work by work is the last thing that we train we yeah. want we want the dog to have an approachable stable nature yeah. if he's going to be working within teams of four you know four sure. man scout teams he may not know the other people and we don't want redirection we don't want him biting an eight-year-old child yeah. or a, you know yeah. a lost tourist yeah. so and the vendor that we that we use um very much orientates towards no bite work just purely tracking so when these dogs come out to us at um because we normally buy at about s- at about six months six months they'll do they'll do 50 meter tracks with a with one turn and it's the, the general characteristics and position of the dog and how they hold and the keenness as to whether we select so you're that's almost uh, uh the way you describe it it's almost something because you've done this quite a few times and seen a lot of dogs it's almost where you can s- read the attitude of the dog how, how how his desire to work and and then you're just going to tap into that i assume very much so um and it is exactly as you're saying it's a very hard thing to describe as, as a it trainer to, to say that you're you operate you're operating on instinct yeah but it is very mu- it is very much like that we're looking at the demeanor of the dog i want a dog that can come up to me and will love me and show me affection, but the minute the line and harness goes on that dog, he's totally focused. Yeah, and he's lying down, and more so, we want to see problem-solving ability. So, if the one of the key uh, elements we look for is that if even at the early selection stages, if the dog loses a track, which they do because they're young, sure, in only in a short track, fifty meters, we want to see a dog that wants to recast himself, and he's still actively looking. He isn't just standing there lost being handler dependent being handler what should dependent. i do what he's should actually I do? got yeah. the drive already at a young age yeah to move forward 
Yeah. I mean, uh, very much with our tracker teams, you we hear the phrase all too often, which is trust your dog. Yes, you should absolutely trust your dog. But the trouble is with tracking, it's more than that. The dog is 40%. He's a, he's a tool that's being used, and you as the handler or the operator. So it should be 40. We work on the basis of 40%. It should be the dog. So the dog takes you on the track. The dog guides you through the track. Then it should be 40% handler. The handler should be reading spore. He should be reading confirmation as he's going along that somebody's been that way. And he should be able to help the dog and assist the dog should the dog lose the track. And the remaining 20% is gut instinct. What would sure. I do if I was a yeah. felon? What would I do if I was a yeah. lost tourist? Yeah. Where would I head yeah. towards, i.e. light a road yeah. or a house yeah. housing complex or a, a house? Yeah. And generally, people are fairly predictable. You know, I found that being a patrol dog handler for a very long time. I, I know the neighborhoods, and, and I had very good success finding bad guys with my dog. But I think a lot of times when we were, when it came down to, uh, when we were dividing up as teams, you know, who wants what area, I had kind of a knack for picking an area because the same thing. I would I would look at the area and say, I think you ran this way, so that's the area I'm going to take for my AOR. And, and I, I so I think you're right. People are predictable. You can. It was it was lovely talking to the old um, retired scout dog infantry teams from Vietnam because their motto was trackers never quit. And all too often you found with the with with tracker handlers where they've had a failure in a track, it's because they just either don't understand the environmental or climatic conditions which have affected or changed the track, yeah. or they just don't have the experience of tracking because, as you said, they might get one day a month where they're able to track. So it's yeah. the lesser discipline out of three oh, well, with, a, yeah. with a general purpose dog yeah. and all too often if you do have that experience and you have that level of knowledge you can you can put the dog back onto track and you can carry yeah. on okay uh, we can't you know we, we keep these around 30 minutes and we can't mm. you know uh, really get too deep in the woods in your class uh, it's a two-hour class i know you have videos and stuff so in that class people are going they're able to see kind of what we've talked about plus a, a lot of operational tracks and some of the the ideas you talk about proximity alerts and everything yep. else in there, so I wish we could wish we had time. We'll probably bring, maybe I'll, uh, we'll bring you back on. We'll kind of get deeper in the woods on it. I know that um, one of my questions would be that if I, you know, again, if if there's a lot of most we have people from all over the world here this week, but the far majority of them are U.S. based handlers. So if somebody's listening to this, and I think the the tracking that we do in the U.S. and and Canada. Um, you gave me some numbers. You want to share those tracking numbers with me across the world with those success rates and stuff? Yeah, this this was pre-COVID. Pre sure. So we're talking about tracking success over one over one mile, over one kilometer. Um, and what they're saying is um, Africa is currently running at about 89%. Um, Canada is running at about 63%. And the UK and the US are running at about 6 to 7% success rate. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure how all those stats work out, but I think if we're honest with ourselves that, um, and I think people listening, I know there's some, some people who listen to my podcast that are, are very passionate about tracking and they're mm, very good at it. But even the people who are very good at it, I think would be, would say that probably sounds about right because they push it a lot. And I think the rest of us that if we're honest with ourselves, as you said, there, you know, if you're talking about several different disciplines we're putting on dogs, tracking is the one that probably is going to be on the lower end of, of our mm. skill set. So with that being said, if, you know, somebody's listening to this and they said, you know what, I like this idea of the head up, the training and all that, but I've been working my dog for three, four, five years, whatever, and my dog, whether he's a, a shepherd or a Malinois or a Dutch shepherd, 
if somebody was able to, you know, like start working in a program like yours, can they still, and uh, I understand, you know, all the genetics and the, the selection test of the dog, but is this a, a program that you teach that you could transition most dogs over to successfully leaving the footprint to footprint tracking and start doing, uh, you know, your type of tracking? Yeah, absolutely. We're working with, because um, obviously, you know, we're very grateful for the service that you know, the police officers give and the idea that they could be the front man walking into an ambush or a potentially situation where they could be killed through lack of experience is something that we, we don't sure. want to happen yeah unfortunately if you look on the the internet there's very very no little knowledge about combat tracking or tactics yes, because it's, it's deliberately it's, it's a closed shop we don't yeah. want people knowing that knowledge but obviously we do want police officers to learn it yeah. but the answer very simply is yes um, we do so we work in with four in four states at the moment in the u.s where we can we give either a three-day or a five-day course and we transition the dogs over to these new methods of tracking to to at least get them started down the road yeah, of, to get of how to started. do this. And um, when they do that course, I assume that their success rate then starts, or at least the trainability of the dog starts getting better when they're doing a hard surface and going around objects and water, you said, and stuff. So you see a, a decent amount of improvement during those three and five days? Yeah, generally with, with the dogs that we've, we've done some retraining, we're not retraining, that's the wrong word, extended their training knowledge is that they they're weak on hard surface and they've sure. certainly done no water tracking whatsoever sure. and are unaware that a dog can track through water so there's always an um uh, a degree of there's an increase in in the, the handler knowledge which is what we want and there's always an improvement in the dog's ability to track at the end of it by the end of the, the three-day or the five-day course we haven't as yet failed in getting a dog to then have yeah. be able to hard surface track and get, nice. his, get his nose up because they're almost, as I said, you, you, you're teaching a left-handed person to write yeah. right-handed. The dog doesn't want to go nose down. He's just yeah. being corrected if he doesn't. So the minute you say, hey, it's okay, it's you okay. Can lift your head up, yeah. they love it. They and it the wants that freedom's there. Then they start searching better. And that's the key thing because a dog that wants to track will actively problem solve on a track. A yeah. dog that, that, is, that is being forced to track him in a sure. method he doesn't want to won't. He'll yeah. stop. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, it's funny. Uh, if it, like I said, my class on just marker training for detection dogs and what you're saying is so similar, and and I see that a lot in going to these classes. I see that so many of us, you know, have evolved because I know I certainly my training has changed over the time I've done this, and it just seems like so many of us are looking at you know letting the dog self learn and letting the dog figure out you know problem solve on their yes, own. Definitely, and and we just get so much of a better product out of that. So, how would uh, people get a hold of you if they're listening to this and they'd like to email you? Um, very simply, if they just put in animal saving animals on a search, we'll come. We okay. have a website. We'll come up and okay. just email me, and I'll happily. Okay, I'll get back to any query from a, a, okay. a police officer or military personnel. Okay, yeah. animal saving animals. Animal and saving animals. And the, that'll that'll come up. Dot org, yeah. and this is uh, Daryl Pleasance, and he spells it D A R Y L L, Daryl Pleasance. So you can Google his name too and see all the stuff. I'll put uh, the address and stuff in the show notes for this. But I know it's uh, it's kind of a busy week, and I appreciate you taking time to run over here and knock out this podcast with me. And I'll probably be hitting you up once you get back home and I get back home, and we'll probably go a little bit deeper in the woods and all of this stuff. So th thanks for your time, Daryl. Uh, I appreciate thank you it. very much.